thanks to Cry Malt. This is Radio Brews News. Uh, my name's Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News, and as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, regular co-conspirator, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. G'day, Matt. G'day, listeners. Mate, missed a week last week, but you know, I think we can have, you know, we've got a reasonable excuse for that. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Radio Brews News HQ was um, in the process of moving to uh, some more salubrious digs befitting our new status as Australia's leading podcast series. <laughs> and to our credit, we did get one out in the uh, midst of Good Beer Week. So, uh, you know, live pretty much uh, from the floor of Gabs. So, yeah, we, we're still doing okay. I we're doing okay. I, I just kind of, I, I did kind of get that mental picture of, um, of uh, Springfield Nuclear Plant um, just changing the sign, you know, regular, seven days without, oh, hang on, no, <laughs> we got it back to zero. Yeah, no, we, we did have a couple of uh, podcasts or a couple of interviews lined up, including the one that we're playing today, but it just didn't, yeah, they were just trying to, between my moving and everything. But anyway, we're here, we're back. We'd rather get it right than rush it. Exactly. And we've got a really good show um, lined up today with uh, Steve Hindi, who's the founder of Brooklyn Brewery and or co-founder of Brooklyn Brewery, and also Adam Ferrier, who's a consumer psychologist talking about all things beer. But I guess we can't start the show without talking a little bit about uh, Good Beer Week and uh, Gabs and uh, just doing a bit of a wrap. Um, and you were heavily involved in Gabs particularly, Prof, but how about Good Beer Week itself? Did, did, did you get out to much apart from the events that you were involved in, um, Brewers and Chewers chief among them? Yeah, not a single one, uh, as per usual. It was, <laughs> it's just one of those things that, um, and this year, I guess, with the AIBA and being fortunate enough to have uh, scored a position as a judge uh, on the panel this year, that was held the week before Good Beer Week, sort of led straight into Beer Week, Good Beer Week. And yet when you're sort of involved in um, both days of the conference and then uh, hosting Ale Stars and Brewers and Chewers on the Tuesday and the Wednesday night, then straight into Gabs, I kind of felt that I was inside Good Beer Week looking out rather than the other way around. It's a pretty big week. And, you know, I got down to Melbourne on the Wednesday and, uh, you know, we had... Uh, on the Tuesday night, we had two days at the Craft Brewers Conference, which I thought was a terrific event. Um, you know, really good, great to see so many people there. Um, as with most of those things, all of the action takes place uh, in the halls rather than in the uh, lectures. But um, we, with two days there, then the awards dinner, then pretty much straight into Gabs, there there wasn't much time to uh, to, to to get out beyond that, apart from just go to check out a couple of bars and. Uh, do a few things there, but uh, look, I, I got to one event on the Thurs on, on the Sunday just before I flew out, um, and it was the Off Your Trolley event at Mericot, um, which is in Melbourne's northeast. Yeah, 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 in the north. In the north, also oh, oh, still in the north. Okay, yeah. it, it's uh, I normally don't get too much further out than there, but look, it was just an astounding event. Um, they were doing the Rodenbach beers together with La Sorens beers, and Costa was presenting, and it was fantastic. It it, it really showed um, a, a very mature approach to beer, where there was some amazing food with some you know, sensational beers. Um, nothing, no gimmicks, nothing spectacular, just good beer and good food, and the sort of event that I love. So, just got um, a question here from a listener: Did the food follow the beer, or did the beer follow the food, oh, or was it yeah. neck and neck? <laughs> Paul Mercurio, if you're listening, I think you misunderstood. I think I've lost you. Look, and and the point I was making, um, listen, just to give you the inside joke there, I was keeping a running commentary on on the the, the beer and food matchings, and I made the comment um, in my writer's uh, vanity of um, making a floral 
uh, description of saying, you know, as, as a good beer dinner should, um, the, the, the food leads the charge and the beer runs to, to, to catch up, meaning that, you know, I think all too often, because it's often brewers who are hosting dinners, they've got a beer that they want to match. So they've got their portfolio of beers um, and then it's left to the chef to try and find foods to, to match. And you get the, and you're always left with the sense that um, it, it, it's a bit of a compromise to make sure that the, the beers are represented. Whereas this was an event that the chefs had really designed an outstanding menu um, that was built around the flavours that they wanted to do and then they chose beers from the portfolio to do it. So it was, you know, whilst beer certainly came out looking, you know, all glamorous, I, I don't think... Um, you know, you, you you would say that the beer was the star of the show because it was the perfectly balanced meal. Uh, oh, and, and in oh, an ideal world, as a as a, a a guy from both the uh, restaurant and beer worlds, I think a symbiotic relationship is the one you're really trying to achieve, where you almost don't know where the food starts and the beer ends, and vice versa. That, that that's a, a pretty rare trick to achieve. It, it, it is, and they they did it spectacularly. And, and so, just you know, with, with um, sort of the, the the warm glow of a couple of uh, La Serene saisons. Um, I, yeah, just made that point. So, but in, I, I sort of, in 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 a caricature sort of way, and Paul Mercurio weighed in and uh, gave a very long defence of um, it should always be about the beer and the um, food equally, and uh, a couple of other people weighed in. So obviously, I didn't make my point very clearly, and uh, yeah, so, but uh, I, I also thought you'd weighed in a little bit prematurely, uh, suggesting that there was a bit of a stoush going on, Prof. I don't think it was I anywhere think near. I, I don't think I intimated that at all. I just said <laughs> I think I was going to send you both to your rooms without any dessert beer if you could which, be which friends. Is, <laughs> which is what happens when there's Don't argue with... at the dinner table, children. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It was a just beer as a conversation, Prof. Exactly. Um, but yeah, look, congratulations to James Smith and the whole team at Good Beer Week. Um, congratulations to Stephen Guy at uh, local tap house, or um, the, these days almost uh, more famously at the uh, at Gabs um, for an, for a fantastic event. And uh, prop, I didn't get down to Sydney last weekend um, for Sydney Gabs, the inaugural Sydney Gabs, but you were there. How, what, what were your thoughts there? Yeah, it was terrific. I think it's fair to say that it was a success. The um, just for the the handful of brewers who have uh, who sought me out to take me aside and sort of say uh, what they really noticed about Gabs was that that particular venue has been used numerous times by various uh, groups to try to uh, achieve, I guess, a, oh, look to, to coin a new phrase, a Gabs-like experience, um, and everyone's kind of gone out. Uh, yeah, with the arse out of their trousers, so to speak. Um, so not only was this the first one where uh, they built it and they did come, but I think the brewers, whether they wanted to use it as a marketing uh, and promotional experience or to actually, you know, cover their costs or perhaps even make a bit, uh, it was a resounding success. Certainly, it's a it was a beautiful venue, very different feel to Melbourne. Obviously, uh, the floor plan was essentially cut and pasted into the into the space um and there'll be you know look Stephen guy um are not one i don't think they even have laurels to rest on um if that if that makes sense they um they're always looking no to, you might need to explain yeah. it <laughs> well not only do they not they, they don't rest on their laurels so much they don't even have laurels okay got okay. you no no they, they certainly don't that's superfluous to uh to, to requirements and that sort of thing and it would just get in the way so i think what i'm trying to say is that they're all already uh you know as soon as they'd set up they were looking at okay next year we need to do this or uh, next year we can improve 
uh, in this area. So next year, I think will be bigger and better. Certainly, I think the um, the plan is to have at least a Friday uh, night session, um, because obviously with that much set up, um, doing just two sessions in one day um, is not as cost effective for either the brewers or the uh, um, the organisers. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really, really, really well done. But they they just are fantastic organisers. You know, they they do it well. The, the the focus obviously they're in business. They want to make money, but it's never at the expense of providing great quality entertainment. And just even the details that they look at. I remember um, we had a bit of fun uh, with your limp-wristed bell ringing um, at uh, to close the the first session of Gabs, um, but. The bell that they bought in was a pretty dodgy affair. Um, they tried to improve the bell, so they got a shinier one, but then when they actually rang it, yeah, realised that it was um, a bit tin-assed and a bit um, cheesy. It didn't have the same resonance. So hmm. to their credit, they went back into storage, got the old one out, and bought it back for um, for the second session. Yeah, and I think a lot of people would have just said, you know, this uh, uh, we're only here for three days. Who cares? We'll it is sure, what it is. Yeah, yeah. We'll do it differently next year. No, they uh, they're certainly fix on the it, fly. Fix it now. Yep. Yeah, throughout it. So anyway, great week. Congratulations to all involved. Thank you, linesman. Thank you, ball boys, and uh, can't wait to see next year. Um, the I, I did mention the craft brewers conference uh, that was held at the Melbourne Exhibition Centre. I think it's called. I, I, I get my exhibition and um... MCEC. It's the Melbourne Convention and Exhibition Centre, as against the Melbourne Convention Centre. So it's not Jeff Shed. It's the new one. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and uh, terrific event um, by the Craft Beer Industry Association uh, team. Um, Steve Hindi opened it. Um, we will have be able to link at the start of this to Steve Hindi's opening address together with. Peter Fielding's uh, opening remarks. I recommend everybody uh, maybe pause the cassette here and uh, go and listen to that because we're about to speak to Steve Hindi, um, who was the founder, of one, the co-founder of Brooklyn Brewery, who made some very interesting comments about the American craft beer industry, the uh, you know the, the, the prospects for the Australian brewing industry, um, the importance of associations such as the CBIA, and I, my interview with him draws on some of those um, topics. Um, so it'll, it'll inform you, but also it was well worth hearing. Fascinating guy, Prof. I know that you were very busy during the Craft Brewers Conference, um, but you managed to, to get in for the opening remarks, didn't you? Yeah, uh, I was also fortunate enough to have heard Steve Hindi give the keynote address at um, Craft Brewers Conference in the States back in 2012 or 13. He didn't just run with the. Uh, he did just didn't pull the old one up on the computer and uh, read it, did he, Prof? No, he did not cut and paste. He did not phone it in at all. Um, as you intimated, it was very much uh, talking about what he knew, but in terms of how it um, how it relates to the Australian market. So, well, we'll we might uh, go straight into the interview with Steve Hindi, and then have a bit of a chat about that on, on, on the back end. So, here's Steve Hindi. Steve Hindi, welcome to Australia, and thank you for joining us on Radio Brews News. Great to be here. Now, I guess you've just given the keynote at the Craft Beer Industry Association Conference. Rather than go over a lot of that, I wouldn't mind picking out some themes that we uh, that, that you raised during that. And the first, first of uh, which was we've seen explosive growth in the U.S. craft beer industry. It's very exciting. There is all sorts of uh, you know, excitement and some would say hype uh, developing. But one figure that you gave is there's one... Point five breweries opening every day in the states. Is that something that is sustainable? I think it is. If you look at uh, the history of brewing 
in America. Before Prohibition, there were 2,000 breweries in America. The population was like 60 million. Today, the population is 325 million. I think we can easily absorb 5,000 breweries or more. And don't forget, probably half of them are brewery restaurants. They're not all production breweries. Are we going back in time somewhat to do that? Because uh, at the time that you mentioned, most people would have known you know, at least one or two farmers where they purchased their, their, their product from. These days, supermarkets, convenience, consistency and quality are what people look for uh, across the board. Um, we have seen a, a boutique movement where people are looking for a little difference. Do you think that craft beer is more than just a temporary you know, interest uh, and, and a little bit of a fad? Oh, yeah, I think it's, it's a sea change in uh, the brewing industry. Uh, we're really, it's kind of a back-to-the-future movement, you know. Uh, back uh, in the old days, uh, local breweries were uh, very prominent parts of their community, very distinctive beers, and today the same is true of craft brewers. If anything, uh, it's much more innovative and creative today than ever before. A big part of um, the movement has come from home brewers, and you acknowledge those. The Brewers Association in the States has had a discussion over the years about whether the, brewer, the home brewers should be part of the movement. A lot of the home brewers see themselves as going pro someday. Mm-hmm. Um, is, is, is making a, a fantastic stout in your garage the same as you know, running a, a brewing business? No, it's not the same, but uh, it takes that kind of passion and creativity that many home brewers have to build a brewery and, and build a successful uh, brand. How many of the breweries that are opening have what you would regard a, a sound level of skills, whether they've been through UC Davis or some of the brewing academies, they've got uh, some entrepreneurship training? Are, are we seeing a lot of first-timers but with solid skills, or are we seeing a lot of first-timers who want to replicate what you did and make a lot of mistakes on the job? I think today uh, most startups have uh, someone with experience on their team, or, uh, you know, they have someone who's been to uh, brewing school. Um, There are many more people getting into this with knowledge uh, in the beginning. And, you know, when we started, we hired a fourth generation German-American brewer to be our first brewmaster. So we weren't just flying blind. And still, and I, and I, I wasn't uh, speaking out of term when I talked about the mistakes you made learning on the job. They're well documented in, in the, the books you've written describing the experience. Um, even with the, 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 the business sense that you had and the brewing experience you had, you still had some very rapid lessons. And uh, re- reading your um, book, Beer School, was a, was a great uh, primer for anyone to realize that you have to be very flexible um, and adaptable in, in, in your business model. Yeah, you know, I always tell people that uh, business requires every bit of imagination and ingenuity that you have, and a lot of imagination and ingenuity that you didn't know you had, uh, because you're confronted with uh, just a myriad of uh, questions and uh, issues and uh, dilemmas uh, that you have to work through. 
During your keynote, you talked a little bit about the uh, divide in, in, in the US where you've got the big brewers and the small brewers. And whilst uh, you, you're very much a diplomat um, of the industry these days, you're an elder statesman uh, of the industry, you could still sense there was that passion and some uh, some battle scars um, or some scars from battles uh, won and lost. In Australia, our market is very, very different. Um, the Craft uh, Beer Industry Association has welcomed the, the, the big two, acknowledging that our market is different. They need their support. Do you, would you foresee that there's a potential for friction between those two camps at some stage down the track, particularly as craft beer grows its hold? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I don't really know the Australian market well enough to comment in, in detail. But uh, just looking around, I, you know, I think one thing that is an impediment for craft brewers here is the contracts that the big brewers have with the retailers. I mean, that essentially freezes out a craft brewer uh, from a lot of the uh, biggest beer sellers in Melbourne and other cities in Australia. And I can't imagine that that, that, that will not become an issue at some point. That said, uh, we hear a lot about the uh, three-tier system in the States and a lot of craft brewers have always complained about getting access to distribution because they can't distribute themselves. Isn't it true that whatever system we run under, there's always going to be divides between big and small and that can be big craft breweries and small craft breweries and we've seen a lot of that as some of the rock stars of the uh, US uh, craft brewing scene have broken out and become much bigger. That hasn't always been thoroughly embraced by some of the smaller startups who fear that they're being uh, disadvantaged by the big craft breweries. Is, is that just a element of business? Yeah, I think it's inevitable uh, that you have uh, competition uh, between big brewers, small brewers, big craft brewers, small craft brewers. And, uh, you know, the, the, the best brewery will win. Uh, it, it's, uh, I, I think it's, there, there is intense competition uh, in America and I'm sure here. But there's also uh, an important sense of uh, collaboration and working together uh, in both markets, and uh, I think that's really important. Another theme that you developed during your keynote was that there isn't a beer bubble. There's been a lot of talk about the uh, growth of the market, whether it's sustainable, and you uh, talked down the fact that there was a uh, beer bubble. But then you also, towards the end of your presentation, talked about the growth of private equity, as we've seen some of the uh, early... Uh, uh, generation craft brewers cashing out for significant sums of money. Um, could the gold rush mentality set into craft beer, where we see a lot of people attracted by the money and not by the passion, even without that uh, the uh, business approach of the private equity managers? Yeah, I'm worried about that. I think that uh, you know a private equity company approaches the brewing business in a very different way than. Steve Hindy approached the, the beer business. And I fear that uh, we could lose a lot of the community, sense of community that I think has been so important in making craft beer successful in the U.S. and here in Australia. Do breweries, once they've been bought by private equity, uh, remain eligible to be members of the Brewers Association? Yes, we have not uh, uh, yet uh, thrown anyone out uh, for taking on that kind of investment. Um, but I'm, you know, uh, I'm not sure uh, 
how that's going to work out in the future. Uh, I think it kind of depends on how many people jump ship. <laughs> will will we see tensions potentially developing in the Brewers Association between if there is enough and there is enough money and the business models change significantly uh, and we lose some of that collaboration? Yeah, I think uh, inevitably it, it's going to put strains on uh, on the on the business and uh, on the players in the business. But you know, there's always been intense competition among uh, craft brewers. Uh, you know, collaboration uh, in uh, uh, like our trade association is one thing, but uh, out there battling to get a tap handle in a bar is a whole different ball game. So. Uh, it's not all uh, brotherhood. Uh, you know, there's intense competition, and, and that's the way it should be. One figure that had uh, delegates both gasping and laughing uh, was you said that Shock Top, which is uh, an Anheuser-Busch um, faux craft beer was the word you described, was selling for less than $50 a barrel. Um, craft beer in Australia would almost never be selling for less than $230 a barrel. What are the structural differences in the industry that allow uh, U.S. craft beer to be so much cheaper than, than Australian craft beer? Well, I think you have very high taxes here, and uh, that's the main reason for the higher uh, cost to, to the consumer of the beer. Uh, typically, our kegs are like $150 uh, in the U.S., so $44 is... Unbelievable. I, I mean, I, I could not, I, my eyes popped out when I saw that number. At the same time, uh, Brooklyn, uh, Sierra Nevada, um, uh, Sam Adams, sorry, Jim Cook's uh, brewery, have all grown to such a size that we're seeing your beers reach uh, Australian shores at very affordable prices. Um, should Australian craft brewers be worried about Steve Hindy? I don't think so. Uh, you know, an Australian craft brewer... Uh, has a much more secure hold on the market here than uh, Steve Hindi and Brooklyn Brewery do. Uh, you know, we export a lot of beer. I think we may be the biggest exporter of craft beer. It'll be about 40% of our sales uh, this year. And that just happened by accident. I mean, it wasn't like we went out with the intention of doing this. Almost from the day we opened our doors in Brooklyn, we had people coming to us and saying, I think I can sell this beer in Sweden or the UK or, or uh, Japan. And I remember saying to people, are you kidding? I'm having trouble selling it in Brooklyn, you know. Uh, and so in the beginning, we just told uh, importers, said, look, we'll send you beer, but you got to pay us first. Uh, and we don't discount the beer that we export. It's sold at a very full price. Uh, for us. So, uh, you know, that there's demand for Brooklyn beer in Australia, and I think it's great. It's great for us. I love coming to Australia. And, uh, you know, it's not something that I set out to create by, you know, doing television advertising or something like that. It just happened to us, and uh, it's welcome. Just one last question, if, if I may. If somebody's listening to this and they're thinking of starting a craft brewery or they've just started a craft brewery, are, are there any just key lessons that, from all of your experience and all of the successes and the mistakes you've made that you would offer them? Yeah, if you're starting a craft brewery, the most important thing you can do is read my book, Beer School. <laughs>
if you're starting a craft brewery, uh, you know, I say good luck, go for it, uh, and you're in for the ordeal of your life. But at least you'll have good beer to keep you company. And you'll have a great time, you'll, and you'll meet a lot of great people. Steve Hindy, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. Thank you, Matthew. There you go, Prof. Now, he is, for a bloke who is, you know, he's been flown to Australia to keynote. He's spoken at beer events all around the world. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, he was on stage with Jasper Cuppage, um, where they launched the idea for a new craft brewers association in the UK. He is the quietest, most, uh, you know, mild-mannered, um, humble person that you could ever hope to meet. Yep. Yeah, very much. Uh, yeah, he and his partner um, were absolutely delightful. They were um, they were kind of sharing a, a little a little bit of a, 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 um, a head cold or uh, you know I don't know good beer week flu that was um, that was going around um, but soldiered on uh, beautifully. There, there are a couple of things that he said uh, during the the speech that I still I know it's a recurring theme in this podcast but I do you know worry about the hype and hubris that spreads into industries such as the the brewing industry at the moment where you see so many breweries open. Um, I mean, he's very bullish, saying that the, the states are at 10%, um, even though there's one and a half breweries opening a day, um, you know, they're nowhere near a craft beer bubble. Yeah. And for me, and look, I, I agree, but when he starts talking about the, the figures, um, you know, about there is, you know, one one brewery to 80,000 people in the states, so I can't remember, or one and one brewery to 64,000 in uh, England. Um, you, you'll hear those figures, listeners. And Australia is, you know, much higher than that. I think we've got one to over 100,000. Um, I, I, I just think that that forgets the fact that Australia is a highly centralised um, economy. You know, we, we've, we're very strongly clustered around capital cities. Um, so... Yeah, I, 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 I don't know those figures directly relate to Australia, but also, well, I think there's a difference between... They also, didn't, uh, they also don't include, I think, I believe, contract breweries. So I, I think the the figures don't necessarily um, correlate directly, if that makes right. sense. Right, okay. That, that does make sense. But the other thing is, I think, when people talk about the craft beer bubble, they look at the number of breweries um and for me there's a difference between craft beer and craft breweries i think the market for craft beer is growing stronger and stronger and stronger which is great people's tastes have really started to change um people looking for something uh, a little bit different um with their beer but whether the breweries making it whether, whether we can have too many breweries making beer i'm i'm still a little bit un- unconvinced about that because you know you speak to anybody that's been around for a while and they talk about it being a unit cost game and they're really trying to get their prices down, their unit production costs down, um, and we're not going to see all of the you know dozens of breweries that are opening up able to, to grow and expand to the state and for a whole host of reasons um, to the, to the you know, extent that they can get their costs down. And once you get a real cost differential between you know breweries making very similar beer, Unless you've got a very very strong brand, it's potentially hard for some breweries to uh, to compete. You know, when you've got a ninety dollar product in the market against a you know sixty sixty five seventy dollar um, yeah. uh, um, you know product, and anyway, that that's uh, I'm sure a lot of people who have 
invested money in stainless steel have, have thought about this, but that's where I'm not quite as bullish as Steve. But no, fascinating interview. Really lovely guy. Felt very honoured to meet him. And listeners, we do have a uh, we, we talked about his book. Um, we've got a copy of his uh, recent book, signed. It's obviously not signed personally to you, um, but it's a, a copy of his book um, that we're going to give away. If you can shoot us an email to editor at bruisenews.com.au telling us what the initials CBIA stand for, um, and we will pick you know, a, ran- a random uh, draw um, from listeners of the podcast. Our so- lines are open now. Uh, operators are standing by. Call now. And thank you very much for listening uh, to that. That's just a little thank you. Uh, thanks to our friends at the – oh, nearly said it, the <laughs> CBIA, um, who uh, kicked that in and Steve generously uh, signed it. Now, next interview, Prof. Um, during Gab's, we did our uh, Bruin transfer, which is our homage, um, a.k.a. direct ripoff of the Gruen transfer, the fantastic ABC series, in which we looked at beer advertising. And we had a fascinating panel of uh, people, including Tim Avadia, who is the general manager for Premium and Craft at CUB, our good friends at CUB. And I can say that without any uh, smirk these days. Um, we also had Justin Fox from Colonial Brewery in Western Australia. And we also had this fellow, Adam Ferrier, who is a regular panellist on the real Gruen transfer. He's a consumer psychologist and he's a really fascinating, really interesting guy um, with his backgrounds in marketing and psychology. Have you seen much of his work, Pete? I have. Yeah, I did quite a bit of research um, this time last year or a little bit earlier when we were trying to get the, the Bruin transfer up as a as a stage show um, and, and sort of looked into – uh, his work, it's, it's just a fascinating area. You, you know, it's something that I think we all try to think we're immune to um, and, and that, that whole consumer psychology and, and oh, ads don't affect me or, uh, you know, I don't, I don't uh, listen to what my TV tells me to do. Um, I, I don't care who makes it. It's how it tastes. Exactly. It's, it's the liquid in the bottle and share of throat and KPIs and all that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, fascinating guy. And it, and it was just a, a pleasure to, to work alongside him. It was great fun. Yeah, and so my first question to Adam was, what is a consumer psychologist? Now, a consumer psychologist is a, uh, a psychologist who looks at um, understanding people as and their relationship with consumption. So um, consumer psychology looks at why people buy what they buy uh, and works out ways to influence them to uh, either buy more or buy less, depending on what side of the, um, the moral compass you're working on. <laughs> we, we might come to that a little bit later, but uh, you, you've got a background. You, you are a psychologist, um, but what fascinated me about your uh, bio is that you spent some time as an international cool hunter. Yeah, um, that was um, uh, by chance, really. So I, I was studying um, uh, psychology and clinical psychology. Um, at the same time, I was studying a marketing degree, so I always knew I wanted to get into some kind of commercialized form of psychology uh, and I did my thesis in clinical psych on identifying the underlying constructs of cool people and um, and I did that again because I wanted to study something that had a commercial application I knew at the time everybody was interested in what makes people cool uh, did that identified five factors that make people cool and then um, I used that knowledge to help uh, brands um, kind of identify cool trends and cool people around the world. So what is a cool person? I'm not just asking for a friend. 
so um, all when, when when we did the study and, and subsequent kind of research later shows that all if you identify somebody as cool, they've got five traits. They've got self belief and confidence. They defy convention bracket, but not for defying convention's sake. They're under uh, they're they're successful, but they're understated about it. So we call that understated achievement. Uh, caring for others, so they're probably slightly left-wing, slightly humanitarian. And uh, the final factor is connectivity, highly connected. Um, so those, those variables were, uh, were what, yeah, what differentiated cool from uncool people. Right. Uh, you, you sound like you're sort of talking about something that's the complete antithesis of uh, what people have come to label the hipster. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, let's go through them. So, Self-belief and confidence, maybe. Defying convention, no, because it's very, very contrived. Um, understated achievement. The hipsters don't strike me as being particularly understated. Caring for others. Pretty self, they seem like a pretty self-centred, very self-aware bunch. I don't know, yeah, so maybe hipsters aren't cool at all. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, don't know. It's, I, reckon, I reckon the whole... I, I find it very difficult how hipsters can... Um, authentically feel hipsterish when there's so much kind of language and uh, discourse going on about their look and their aesthetic. It must be very hard for them to just just not care what people think when everybody has an opinion on their on their tribe, if you like. <laughs> I should say that was a, a, a completely unplanned detour, and it's not in any way suggesting that craft beer drinkers or beer drinkers are hipsters, but uh, <laughs> which seems has been a subject of discussion recently that has upset a few people. Right. One of the things I wanted to speak to you about today is beer in Australia is one of those products that people have a very strong sense of emotional attachment to. We have a, a much stronger attraction to beer brand and uh, you know, think much more deeply about beer than we do about a whole lot of other consumer goods, you know, something as ubiquitous as milk or even something as uh, recently popular as wine. What is that emotional attachment? Um, you know, why do we have such a personal resonant attachment to beer? I guess, there's a, I guess there's a few reasons for that. Number one is, um, is the alcohol in beer will give you some kind of um, disinhibiting effect and, um, and some kind of... Um, it loosen you up a little bit, and when you have a disinhibiting effect and you can act to how you want to act, then you're going to have a pretty close relationship with any brand or any product category that has that promise. You want to be able to trust that brand pretty well. The second thing is people are normally drinking beers in situations that matter. It's not around the breakfast table when it's just you and um, you on your own or you or your flatmate or you and your wife or somebody you know really well, you're often consuming beer in situations that are highly socially important to you. And so uh, there's a saying in consumer psychology that actual self plus brand equals ideal self. And so at the very least, you want the brands you consume to be reflective of who you are and or who you aspire to be. And so therefore, because because you're consuming beer in situations that are important to you and important on, on how you perceive yourself and the friendships you have and so on, it kind of tends to have an elevated role, I guess, in our in our consciousness, what, what beer you choose and what that beer says about you. The difficulty for marketers is it's bloody hard to get people to admit that. 
we, we, that, that's another idea that I think we'll come back to um, uh, about admitting to ourselves why we uh, choose the brand of beer. But it's interesting that you say um, that brand you know, um, is self plus ideal self or brand. Sorry, uh, just Actual self plus brand equals ideal self. Equals ideal self because when you look at some of the famous beer ads and uh, we, we talked about some of these the Bruin transfer recently but you know you, you think of the classic Forex ad where there's four you know I would describe as slightly buffoony guys on a fishing trip you know uh, none of them are particularly uh, you know athletic looking they all look like they've sort of uh, gone to sea a little bit there doesn't seem to be too much ideal self reflected in in those ads. Um, is it that beer drinkers have a very low sense of self that that is their idea, <laughs> ideal self? Yeah, well, you know, if you think about the 70s, when we're probably possibly living in a time where most people were more constrained and had more, um, prof, you know, in quotes, professional office jobs, and there was less casualisation in the workforce. And so then when you wanted to have a beer, you know, beer was all about clocking off and enjoying yourself and being a buffoon with your mates and hanging out. So, you know, I'd, I'd challenge that and say, no, for, for the time, that probably was a pretty good articulation of what your ideal self was in that moment. I'm talking about the current Forex ads. <laughs> so, so, 30, so 30 years down the track... Are we now, you know, as the, uh, the the mainstream beer industry sort of uh, really uh, missed the boat and sort of stayed, you know, decades away in terms of our self self identity? Well, I reckon a lot of uh, I reckon the big commercial brewers are operating uh, with you know two tiers of brands at the moment. You've got your traditional mass market brands, and you've got your niche kind of more urban or craft uh, brands. And you know maybe they're just staying the course on those bigger brands because that's what those brand that's what the meaning of those brands is all about, and maybe there's still a target consumer that those messages resonate to. But I think what's what's interesting is is the whole kind of, where the growth is in, in the beer category rather than the decline. Those those codes, those buffoony mateship codes, are are not there at all in in the growth areas of um of beer. I look at a watershed, and when when you see the ads, um, you know they're, they're targeting blokes who are probably, you know, 40 and above. Um, the, the the Forex Gold ad, and then you've got Forex Summer Bright Lager that targets is is what's called a contemporary um, premium, which is a you know they seem to be targeting the under 30s, and they've got a very different um, brand promise um, than the other Forex brands. Is that sort of a case of a line? You know, understanding a little bit where it's going, and uh, I, I described it uh, at the Bruin, uh, the Bruin transfer as you know they almost are waiting for the forex gold drinkers to die off so they can shift fully into the more contemporary uh, attitude of beer. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I, mean, I, don't, I don't know, and I haven't spoken spoken to them obviously, but my yeah, I, I'm, I'm assuming that they're understanding the trends and understanding uh, the changing demographic of beer drinkers and. Um, and trying to contemporise that brand. But it's bloody hard. Again, it's really hard to do that. A brand's like a muscle. And uh, if you constantly do the same thing over and over again, you get very, very strong at standing for one thing, but it gets very, very inflexible and very hard to stretch out of doing that. So that's why uh, big kind of legacy brands struggle to reinvent themselves because they've become so strong, so synonymous with one thing in the consumer's mind. 
That's something that uh, we've seen the Brewers grappling with. The Brewers Association came out last year and talked about they were going to bring a uh, uh, campaign about brand beer and try and change some of the, what are now regarded as negative perceptions about beer, um, you know, that it uh, causes weight gain, that it uh, you know, is only for blokes and not women and that women aren't welcome to the party. Um, I've criticised them on the basis that you know, they were the ones that helped shape and reinforce those perceptions. Is, is that what you're talking about there, that it becomes inflexible, it's very hard to change those perceptions that they've reinforced? Yeah, I was, I was talking about more, more, I mean, I was talking about more mainstream lager style, what was Australians call, I think what Australians call lager style uh, full strength beers. You know, they, they have positioned themselves uh, as largely um, irrelevant to to emerging beer drinkers. However, it is what what beer has done as a brand is it's broadened its uh, it's broadened what is now considered beer into a whole lot of you know all the craft beers, uh, premium beers, light beers, mid drinks, and, and so on and so on. So it kind of feels like at the moment your 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 mainstream full strength lager has got a dated uh, a very dated um, role in society, but it's like but beer. Feels as a category feels stronger than ever, ever mainly because of what all the niche brewers are doing, and beer culture is changing massively, and it's so exciting as a as a beer lover uh, to see. So more women are drinking beer than ever, more pr- better quality beers are being drunk. You know all of all of the kind of stuff you know, and um, and your listeners of this would already know anyway. We've seen over the last few years uh, what were once imported beers, but are now international beers. They're, most of them are brewed here, um, have almost become the mainstream uh, market. They're, they're no longer seen as premium. They're almost the default beer for a big part of the uh, population, the beer drinking population. But even though they're brewed here, uh, they don't seem to have lost too much of their cachet. Um, what is it about the international beers that something that is the equivalent of you know, Foster's or uh, VB on the streets of Rome or uh, you know, Bremen in Germany um, or, or, or the States is seen as premium when it lands on our shores? Um, well, that, that's not... There's, there's a, couple, a couple of things. That, that, that's not dissimilar to, to cars where um, BMWs in, in Germany are, are taxis and yet over here they're kind of seen as as premium cars so it depends if something's not from here it has a sense of scarcity and value that uh and, it, and kind of for want of a better word exoticness and a, a whole lot of symbolism symbolism that you can buy into that, that marks you as a particular person so if you're drinking um a beer from belgium it's going to say you know you've got a bit european a bit kind of arty a bit whatever if the beer, if so, that becomes the beer, the the brand promise, and the brand promise is made up of everything that brand does, everything that brand stands for, the image of it, the label, the advertising, that what's in the actual liquid itself. Out of all of those factors, if that suddenly just says, "Oh, brewed in Australia," or, or "brewed in Australia," or "made in Australia," to to European recipes or whatever, that's only one very, very, very small component of what that brand's actually about. So therefore, it kind of makes sense that it should have very little impact on sales or very few people would reject it based on just purely on the fact that it's consumed here. When we, when we consume beer or any other any brand, it has two lots of benefits. It has rational benefits, what's the actual product like, what it does to me, and emotional benefits. 
The emotional benefits of beer, because it's, as you said before, such an emotive category is so important that they can still survive even if the, no matter where the beer is brewed. Does that make sense? So, so yeah. So a Belgian beer is still a Belgian beer, even if it, because that's the promise. That's what it says. That's what it communicates. That's its image, uh, even if it's actually brewed here. A lot of uh, beer drinkers that I communicate with feel cheated when they turn the bottle over and see a very small print, you know, brewed under licence in Australia. Is it the marketers cheating them, or are they allowing themselves to be deluded by buying into the whole uh, uh, brand anyway? I think we're deceiving ourselves for buying into that. I think you know, if you if you discover the, a, a brand you really love and you've. Um, invested a lot of, that, of yourself into that brand and you find out it's from it's brewed in Australia where you thought it was brewed in Belgium, I think you're going to be able to find a way to rationalise your way out of that very, very easily. Um, there's a great book by a guy called Seth Godin called All Marketers Are Liars. And what he, what he says is, we like, is market, a marketer's job is to create a story about a brand that's believable enough for, for, um, for consumers to buy into and feel okay about so if you're drinking, for example, a Stella that's from, the, and you're drinking it because you want to be perceived as premium, it's a bit European, it's a bit arty or whatever, then as long as that brand is communicating all of that kind of stuff about you and the beer tastes all right, then you're going to forgive that brand very, very quickly for being brewed in Australia. If it's being brewed in Australia, it fundamentally communicates something very, very different about you, so it's, it's on massive letters and the packaging or whatever, then you might change your mind. But um, other than that, you're going to be very, you're quite happy to deceive yourself to go along with the story. I get um, the, the the feeling from craft drinkers, and I, in fact, they come out and say um, that they drink purely for the flavour. That they don't care who makes it, and you know, you see a lot of people sort of saying, "Look, I don't care who makes my beer. I'll just sort of go where the flavour is." It, it, are they sort of much more in in, in tune with? You know the, the the rational benefits, or are they sort of buying into some of those emotional benefits as well? Yeah, I, 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 it's, I, I would have. I'd ha- it's it's an interesting question, and I think they're probably. Uh, I think they're probably deluding themselves. So I think they're probably buying into the image uh, of that beer and of that craft beer as much as anyone. And I think as soon as they drink that beer, they want to know the story. You know, if they find a beer they like, they'd want to know the story about it who the brewer is, where it's brewed, and then they'll be quick to recite all of that information to someone else when given the opportunity. Now, they might think they're doing that to tell just a pure product story, but even by their their willingness or their want to just tell a pure product story, it's also communicating something about them that they don't get into the hype of brands and all of that kind of stuff. But then they're still using that brand in the same kind of way. Today young consumer is completely marketing saturated. They don't know what it's like to live in a society where not everything's branded. So everything, absolutely everything, has, has a kind of a, a brand story associated with it. If you're talking about a 65-year-old uh, plus kind of uh, consumer who grew up in a time when marketing wasn't as pervasive, then I might believe them a little bit more that they really truly just have found something they like the taste of and they're not interested in the marketing message. But if it's anyone 65 or younger, I think, nah, they're just, we're all suckers for it. <laughs> it, it. It sounds like it's going a little bit back to uh, the, the whole question of who is cool. Um, you know, it, it, it sounds like we, for most of us, feel that we need permission 
to drink, or we need to be able to justify what we're drinking if we're asked by uh, you know, a friend, why are you drinking that? Is that something that we, we sort of look for when we choose the brands that reflect us? Yeah, I think you know, what, I think you're talking about the barroom defence, which is, uh, I think both the big brewers use that kind of phraseology. Uh, so when somebody asks you why you're drinking a beer, no matter what the emotional reasons are, you've got a rational defence. You can't say I'm drinking that beer because I like the advertising. You have to, or I like the packaging, or I like the story of the brewery. You have to be able to say something rational about the actual liquid itself. Oh, it's crisp, it's refreshing, it's got chocolatey notes, whatever it is. But people need a rational decision, again, so they, they can feel good about themselves and see themselves as a, as a rational human being, not somebody who makes their decisions based on a whim or based purely emotionally. Um, so it's, it's, it's human. It, what I really want, I'd, I'd love people just to understand marketing, understand its effects, admit that none of us are immune from it and then once we kind of acknowledge that to ourselves then we can make more informed decisions about what we buy into and what we don't if that makes sense yeah it does the wine industry's got some great studies where they've hooked people up to eeg machines and given them glasses of wine and said this one's a 15 dollar bottle and the next one's a 75 dollar bottle of wine and measured the, the the way that their brain registers pleasure for each of them yeah that's and they, right and then what you're talking about there's a great study where they where they looked at the thing called the price placebo and the more you charge the better it tastes and the more you enjoy the wine now nobody's going to admit to that and they're not going to admit to enjoying the bottle of wine more if they pay more for it. And the same works for beer as well. But, you know, in quotes, it's the truth. And so people need to acknowledge that. <laughs> but the, the thing about those studies that for me is, you know, I can understand rationally that we convince ourselves um, that, we want to in, that we want to enjoy it more. But that study showed that there was actually a physical response um, of, of greater pleasure for the more expensive thing. And it, to, to me, it shows how deeply we delude ourselves uh, in, in those sorts of situations. Yeah, one, yeah, I, I totally agree. And um, it just goes to show how, how far, how hard it is for us to convince ourselves that we're um, enjoying something for rational reasons. And if we're paying more for it, then it must be better quality wine and we must be enjoying it more than if we didn't pay more for it, so therefore we do. We're very effective liars to ourselves. You've had some, uh, you know, you've got extensive experience uh, in advertising. You work for Cummins and Partners that has done that has won a number of awards um, for the way that you've uh, approached your advertising. Is there one beer brand that you would love to take control of and you know turn around its uh, its advertising and its marketing? Um. Uh, let me answer that by uh, I'll answer a slightly different question. Uh, I really respect and love what uh, Corona has done for the industry. I think uh, I'm sure a few of your listeners would uh, that would put hairs on the back of their neck. <laughs> but uh, but I, but I think how I think I think their style of advertising, the emotive promise, I think is wonderful. I think it's great. I think uh, I think the way Coopers has maintained um, its relevance as craft beer has skyrocketed, I think, is uh, very admirable. Um, I would love to see um, every mainstream brand have a genuine uh, chocolate porter with a. Uh, probably with with coffee in it as well just because I just love them and so you know if if I could convince any big brewer to do that that would be great um but there's no there's no real there's no real brand I I'm dying necessarily to get my hands on 
One of the things I, I was told by a marketer for one of the big breweries is that they found it very hard to engage with the craft segment because it is so small. Um, and you know it was described that they have big hands, and so they, they sort of can't get in and pick up the little um, bits and pieces that are that are floating around. Um, is is there a way that you think that they could much more effectively engage with these new and emerging craft beer markets than they have already? I love that expression of the, of the big hands, and I, and I uh, see the issue. I mean, marketing is a, is a mass market game where traditionally you have uh, mass production, mass distribution, supported by mass communications, and that's what the big brewers have gotten good at. They need to get a whole different skill set to be able to manage um, craft beers. Unfortunately, craft beers, a little bit like wine, sometimes work against the the rules of marketing where the, the more popular it becomes, the more aspirational it becomes, and in fact, uh, you know, for many wine brands, sometimes becoming popular can kill the brand. And I think craft beers face that same struggle. They need to be managed, yeah, very delicately and very nimbly. Um, and they and there's a whole different set of skill sets rather than just advertising that they need that the big brewers need to learn. And that's kind of again why I think it's kind of it's kind of like a two-speed economy at the moment. There's your massive legacy brands. And then there's the, the craft brands, and they need very, very different skill sets in how those brands are marketed. You're a beer lover yourself, and I understand that you wrote your book, The Advertising Effect, uh, How to Change Behaviour, sitting in the local tap house at St Kilda. Um, yep, that, that, that's right. Many, Sunday, many, many a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. It, what do you think craft beer could do to better sell its own brand? Uh, I think it needs, I think craft beer, I think it's already doing it. I think it's already embracing females and femininity and making sure every craft brewer has uh, has females as part of its target market, so it's a inc- totally inc- inclusive brand for a modern world. The other thing I think it could do, which it's already doing, is losing its stuffy bearded image and... Um, oh, I'm not sure about maybe the stuffy image. I'm not so so sure about the bearded image. <laughs> There's quite a few beards on there associated with craft beer, <laughs> but uh, you know, craft beer to me is just um, is beer with with beer with flavour, and um, and that can and, and beer that offers new experiences each time you try it, and that doesn't have to be shrouded in uh, yeldy worldy imagery or and and. And alternatively, people, if, if people don't do that, the craft brewers, then they go straight to hipster imagery. But there's a lot of other stuff in between where you can just wrap a different type of product story around that, those beers. So I think just being even more inclusive of women and, being, and offering a more contemporary um, uh, image. Um, it could be modern, it could be slick, it, you know, it could be whatever. It doesn't have to be ye olde worldy. Adam, we could uh, discuss this for hours and we might get you on uh, at, at a much later stage, but uh, I know you've got a meeting to go to. Thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. And uh, now we'd, um, we'll link to your book, The Advertising Effect, because I think it's something that a lot of people in the craft industry um, should read. Um, can you just give us a 30-second elevator pitch for, for buying the book? Yeah, thanks for linking it. I'd love to. Um, the whole premise of the book is, uh, how to, is I've been in two industries, uh, as a psychologist and in advertising, both of those industries about how to change people's behaviour. Uh, the premise of the book is that everybody's in the behaviour change business, whether you've got your own brewery, whether you're a mother trying to get a kid to eat her vegetables, 
uh, or whether you're a husband trying to get your partner to come home on time. We're all trying to change other people's behaviour. So it's just taking what I know and putting it into a book. And then the fundamental premise of the book beyond that is that action changes attitude much faster than attitude changes action. So if you can get somebody to do something, and we were talking a bit, a bit about it before, then they're going to change their thoughts and feelings to make sense of their behaviour. Um, so wherever possible, try to ask people a favour, try to get them to do something for you. And if you can do that, they'll change their thoughts and feelings to make sense of that. And so it's all about different ways to get people to act and therefore change their behaviour. Um, but yeah, yeah. anyway, that, that's a long-winded pitch. Oh, we, we got to the 16th floor. That's no worries. <laughs> Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There we go, Prof. That was... I, I, I don't want to preempt anything, but I just have a feeling now that he might change his bio to sort of say, panellist on the Bruin transfer. <laughs> no, I, I don't think so. And uh, I, I've, I've taken up a bit of his time recently between the Bruin transfer and uh, I, I interviewed him for something else I did and then also uh, also this um, interview. But no, I, he, I, I he was very generous to us with his time and, um, and, and put up with us beautifully. As a, yes. the ultimate professional that he is, I reckon he had fun, and plus he had you know as much beer as he could drink. And he, he's very him. partial to uh, to good stouts, you know, good oatmeal stouts yeah. and things like that. So um, yeah, he uh, which I was quite Im- impressed with. But no, very nice guy, fascinating guy. And I could have spoken to him for hours because, as you know, uh, you know, regular listeners will know that I've got a real um, you know fascination with the psychology of beer as, as much as the flavour, and you know, for a whole lot of the reasons that Adam talked about. So uh, we we thank Adam for coming on, and we will link to his book as well. This is a bit of a uh, you know bibliophile ep- edition. Um, I don't have a copy to give away. Um, actually, we might even dig into the uh, to the archive um, prof and uh, you know have a have a second prize. Uh, you know, just send us some feedback on this on this episode and Australian Brews News, Radio Brews News generally listeners. And, uh, yeah, someone who takes the time to do that will win a copy of uh, Adam's book, um, which uh, very highly uh, fascinating reading. So, uh, Prof, um, anything else to, to discuss? No, I think that's probably about it. We're um, so You and I are now heads down and bottoms up in terms of um, planning ahead for uh, taking craft beer to the masses yet again for the third year running at the Ecker. At the Brisbane Echo, I've got regional flavours that I'm uh, reprising the Hunting Club stage. Oh, okay, we've nice. We've got a great uh, group of brewers uh, coming along, including a couple of local ones this year. We've got Green Beacon. Uh, that's the 18th, 19th of July, so about six weeks away. Um, and it, it is honestly one of the best uh, beer events. Because it, it's a food festival. It's a major food festival in Brisbane. But the because it's run under the Brisbane marketing, it's part of the South Bank Parklands Charter um, they really do it well. So it's not an events company coming in to do it. They run it as an entertainment and as an engagement for, for the city, which just changes the psychology and the um, 
and, you know, the, yeah, and the precinct comes up really well. Like it, it, it is really like a, a a a good food and beverage festival. It is, and they've they've worked with me over the last couple of years to to bring good beer into the venue, and rather than just go to one big corporate sponsor as other um, you know food festivals have done. Um, you know, they, they really want to get local, small, um, you know, craft brewers in there um, who are making good beer and match it to food. So, yeah, I'm very honoured to be part of that. So that's coming up as well. And uh, we really do start to see it. There's something about the onset of winter that sees the craft beer um, world really take off, which is interesting when you think of uh, beer as a summer drink. Yeah, exactly. And I'll see you in a couple of weeks, Matt. I'm um, bringing the family up to uh, the Sunshine Coast. We might have to do live from the pub, uh, an episode live from the pub prop. I think we, well, maybe from the Sunshine Coast Brewery or um, or something like that. Great idea. Actually, there's some there's some good little uh, beer bars there's up there. There's another one in the so bar, I think, isn't there, that's, um, that's popped up on my radar recently or somewhere down that way? There is. There is. Um, so we might even uh, contact there's them. There's a shout-out to them. Yeah, <laughs> I've just got to think of we the name. We pay for our own um, drinks. We, we do pay for our own yeah. drinks. We just need a quiet little corner of the bar and uh, have a bit of a chat. Yeah, you and I face to face live from the you know, live from the pub. Done. Prof, always good to chat. Um, look forward to chatting, catching with you again next week. Um, I got a couple of irons in the fire with who we're going to speak to. Um, we are going to speak to Danita Warren, who is the uh, head of the Brewers Association, which is the uh, association designed to uh, you know, promote the interests of the large brewers. Um, and uh, there's some interesting stuff there, but I've got a couple of other people that we're going to speak to. Um, we are going to be speaking to Martin Cornell, um, who is our favourite um, you know, beer... Mythbusters. Wonk. Yes, um, to talk a, a, a little bit about beer style. Um, and uh, we've got some other great people that we uh, will we'll be speaking to, but I'm just not sure who it'll be next week. Yeah, I've got three or four lined up as well. So um, we've, we've, we've got our regularity sorted out for the next couple of months. We do. So thank you for joining us, listeners. Um, don't forget we've got those two competitions. Uh, editor at brewsnews.com.au. Keep those cards what and letters coming. And keep the cards and letters coming. And uh, as always... Drink less, drink better. Talk to you next week. Drink fresh, drink local. See you next time. Roll out the barrel. We'll have a barrel of fun. Roll out the barrel. We've got the blues on the run. Sing boom terrera. Sing out a song of good cheer. Now's the time to roll. And we're out.